0: And if you got your Bibles, you can turn to um, 1 John. 1 John, chapter 3. 1 John 3. Let me pray real quick. Father, as we approach a challenging topic, we ask for your spirit to give us insight into our own hearts and... Um, what we need to do to please you as a, as a body, as a church family. And we just ask for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, you know, the Apostle John lived very long, and uh, longer than the other apostles, quite a bit longer, than at least of, of the ones we know about. And um, not too long after he passed away, in the, uh, the, near the end of the first century, in the second century A.D., there was a very highly regarded Roman writer named Lucian. And he was a satirist, sort of like a Mark Twain of the Roman Empire. And uh, he loved poking fun at at people and human foibles and he loved to poke fun at religion. And since Rome was mainly a a pagan world, you know, he poked fun at pagan mythology and all those kind of things. But he was quite aware of the the rising faith in the world, which was Christianity. And speaking of Jesus, he famously said, quote, Talking about Jesus, he says their lawgiver, talking about Christ, has persuaded them that they're all brethren. He said Christians love each other before they're even acquainted, if they know that they are Christians. And I just love that. <laughs> they were famous because they were considered each other brothers, and they loved each other. That was his. That was the meanest thing he could think of to say. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if. He was around today if he would say that about the Christian church, you know. I'm not sure he would. But I'm glad he saw it there. They they love each other in Christ even before they meet. And early Christians their default pres- position, their default way was to love each other. And for that to be true tells you how the church took over the world. It really does. It tells you how it dominated the Roman Empire over the next few centuries. And it just makes me wonder what a satirist would say today. Well, you know what they say. And it's not good, most of it, and and a lot of their poking is kind of accurate, sometimes. So, um, sort of sad. Well, last Sunday we started about uh, talking about how essential it is for believers in Christ, born again people, to love each other. Um, we we looked at 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, which says, "For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another." And we talked about the words of Jesus at the Last Supper, his his final message to the disciples. Before his death, he called it a new commandment. Even though there's a commandment like it in the Old Testament, but he elevated it and made it central. And John tells us that, well, he, John says just before Jesus spoke those words, he was leaning on Jesus' breast. I'd like to imagine what that must have been like for him. Feeling his breath, you know, his chest and the warmth of his body. and uh, You're... Your, your ear is inches from his mouth, you know, and he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. For, for by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's John thirteen thirty four. if you're jotting the stuff down. We also mentioned last time that although Jesus taught us to love even our enemies, he says there that the greatest impact that we'll have on the world around us will be through loving each other. And that's what makes it so interesting that Lucian kind of picked up on that. That's what he actually knew about Christians, that they love each other. They love each other when they don't even know each other. You know, the world doesn't see too much real love. So that's why it's so important that... Christians love each other. And we are to love all people and we're to love our enemies, but um, Jesus says the world will know we're his by the love we have for one another. That's really the, the great thing. How are you doing <laughs> with that, you know? Are you loving the brethren and the sisterin? You know brethren covers girls, right? It's like mankind, right? I know the world's changed and we don't do that anymore. And your Bibles have even changed. Modern Bibles always say, and sisters. Well, brothers covers every human being everybody that believes so if the world sees it in the church Jesus is saying it's gonna have a deep impression on them and it's gonna point people to him that's why it's so important I think it's really sad but many church-going people at least don't make that a priority I I actually think we don't think about it very much this obligation to love each other but it's a major thing that Jesus is saying here. It's one of his most important statements that John heard and recorded for us. That's how, we're, that's how they're going to know that we belong to him by the love we have for each other. So the church is a spiritual family and its, it's great purpose is being an, well, an embassy for the kingdom of God. That's really what the church is. It's, it's God's embassy for a, a, a kingdom that isn't here, that's coming. And we're ambassadors of that kingdom and the great king, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So you and I are ambassadors and that means our life as ambassadors is built on that commandment to love one another. That's the foundation of that kingdom that he wants people to see. And the New Testament is so full of exhortations to love each other. I'm just going to run through a couple real quick. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 13, 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. You could talk about that one a long time. Galatians 5, 13, you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, nine. Now as to the love of the brethren you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And oh boy Peter you know Paul is often called the apostle of love because of the 1 Corinthians 13 the great love chapter but Peter man 1 Peter one twenty two. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart. 1 Peter 2.17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Little summary statements there, but he saves the word love for the brotherhood, right? The brethren. 1 Peter 4.8, above all keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. There's just so many exhortations, it's central to Christianity, but that shows us two things. That, that it keeps showing up in the scriptures. One is that love, loving each other is supremely important. I mean, it's like the top thing. It's the most important thing you need to be doing. And the second thing is, it must not be easy to achieve because it shows up so many times as an exhortation to do this. So guess what? We're sinners and we kind of uh, fall away from that and we get interested in other things and do other things instead and we love other stuff more than we love the brethren and all of that can easily happen. So. We have these exhortations reminding us, reminding us. And somebody must have been doing it right because Lucian, long after John is dead, is saying, those Christians, they just love each other so much. They're all brothers, you know. That's a great thing. It's a great thing that he saw that. So also last time we looked at First um, John chapter 3, verse 14. And you know, if you don't have that love, he's kind of saying here, You need to think about whether your faith is real or not. So 1 John 3, 14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do I know I'm not dead in my sin anymore and now I live through Christ? Because we love the brethren. That's how we know. He who does not love abides in death, he says. Wow. So we know we're saved because we love the brethren. And I think you would say I would say you're saved if you love Christ. And that, of course, is true. You have to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's part of being a believer as well. But I think he's saying this because can you love Christ and reject the people he loves? You know, can you really love Christ first if you don't care anything about his people? If you, if you love him, you're going to love what he loves. And he loves his church. He loves his people. So that's really important to remember. And that's the question John's really putting to us. And then, verse 15, it gets worse. More ominously, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now we've talked a lot about John. He often talks in extremes, right? Not a lot of middle ground there. But just how much middle ground is there between love and hate? I think that's what he's asking. There's not a lot of half ways there. I mean we come up with half ways. Well I don't hate them. I just don't like them. You know that kind of thing. But how much hate can you still have and then say the love of Christ is what characterizes your life. How much hate for God's people can you have and then you say you love him. How does that work? And John says it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So today we're going to talk about love and hate in Christ's church. So the church, of course, is where hate should have no place. There's only one thing you should hate, your sin. (laughs) That's what you should hate. You should hate your own sinfulness, but other than that, you should love people. We can hate evil, especially evil in ourselves. And we hate sin for Jesus' sake, because hate works against, not for, our brothers and sisters. So, we don't want to sin because, and we should hate sin, because sin works against the good of those that we're supposed to love. So we we are not to sin. So any true believer knows and and believes that we must love one another. We all know that. But doing it, that's, that's hard sometimes. It's not always easy. Not always easy. And to love each other as Christ wants us to, we have to be able to Be aware and resist the worst parts of ourselves. We have to fight ourselves, our flesh. Hating is the worst part of yourself. And hating the worst part of yourself is a great aid in loving each other. So if you work on hating your own hate, that will set you free to love. You should just despise it when you are dismissive of others, or look down on others, or hate others, or just can't deal with them. Especially the saints, those that are with you in Christ in the church. So John gives us two things to think about right there, right away, he says you need to realize how serious it is to hate each other. And part of that is realizing that hate is murder. It's amazing that he says that, but is it really surprising? Verse 15 again, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, he got that from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about hate as murder. Because people, what's the most common thing, if you're trying to talk to somebody about their sin, what's the most common thing an unbeliever says, why they don't need Jesus? I haven't murdered anyone. That's usually it. Like, their standard is, I don't murder. So, I'm good. (laughs) That's not how God looks at it. In like fact, Jesus said, if you hate someone, you, you murdered them in your heart. And that's what John's talking about. But it flows, this verse 15 flows right out of verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So if there's no, there's no new birth, there's no new life, if there's no life of Christ at work in you, if the love of the brethren just isn't there at all, if that's just absent, Without the new birth, you just are who you are. You're spiritually dead. And you've never received the new life of Christ. If you do not love, you hate. And that's where people resist. You know, they say, I don't hate. I don't hate anybody. I just don't like a lot of people. Or so and so. That person. I don't like that person. I guess it kind of depends on how you define hate, you know. But don't assume that your dislike of other people is not hate in the eyes of God. Because I think very often it actually is. So don't assume that I just don't like them is not hate. What does God think about your disliking someone? Hate can, hate can be a very intense dislike. I abhor that person. I despise that person. I utterly reject that person, so it's a it's a kind of a personal animosity, right? A, a anti someone else, but hate can have a softer sort of version of it. Um, even in English, the English language, there just sort of disdain. Sort of, I won't bother with you. You're not really worth my time. And hate can also represent long wrong wrong priorities. I, I mean, if you think about, remember, probably the most um, challenging verse in the in the Gospels is where Jesus tells you to hate your parents. And people always—I don't know how many times I've been asked that question over the years. What's he talking about there? Luke fourteen twenty-six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother or sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? Now, in one of the other gospels, it quotes that and says um, uh, it change, It doesn't use the word hate because that can be confusing, but it makes you go, "Wait a minute." I mean, Jesus taught love for everybody, right? And family and, but what's he doing there? What's he saying? He means that family love has to be ordered under your love for God. God. God love always has to come first. You have to love him first above everyone else and above everything else so when family love conflicts with your love for God family has got to be ordered under it, it's not the highest priority like in those days a dad's will, the dad in the family his will was the absolute authority in a Roman family and that must be that must be ranked below obedience to God my dad says this and God says this I'm going with God, I have to and in a in Roman world anyway, your father could put you to death if you were, it was the pater familias, right? The, the, the dad over the family. He had the right of the power of life and death over his own family. But even if dad or mom or brother or wife pleads with you to choose them over God, it is a sin to do that, to, to go with them. You have to ignore their pleas. You have to turn away, and they will see it as hate if you choose God over them. For example, if you're a Muslim and you uh, choose to follow Christ, when Jesus says you have to hate even your own life, you might lose it in that situation. Dad might put you to death for following Jesus. Your life may very well be in danger. That's why you must hate even your own life to follow Jesus. But they're going to see turning from Allah as hating the family. Shaming them. Wrecking them. Destroying their reputation in the community. Even though you don't hate them at all. You love them. And you want what's best for them. But what you've done is hateful to them. So they see it as hate. And that's what Jesus is talking about there. So God comes first always and in everything. And everything else comes under that. You know, a good example would be Solomon. Solomon married this incredibly beautiful Egyptian princess who was a pagan. And he loved her. And he built pagan temples for her near Jerusalem. He loved her more than God. He was faithless to God in his love for his wife. That was one of 900 wives, but um, (laughs) she seemed to have a favorite position. There's always a chief wife, you know. So the hate Jesus is talking about there in, in Luke 14 is really a hate of comparison. God, God's requirements come before the family. But I think John is talking about not so much that as what we call hate in our culture. Personal animosity towards another human being. Um, not wishing well for them. Not doing well to them. And, uh, you know, disgust, repugnance, hostility not caring for them as you would somebody you liked or loved. We can never fail. We should never fail in seeking the best for every brother and sister in Christ. That's not always easy, but that's where the rubber meets the road. That's the test of whether you just dislike somebody or um, you hate them. If you can't minister to them and seek their best in Christ, you hate them. Well, what if I don't feel appreciated by so-and-so? What if they don't warm up to me? What if they kind of treat me with a little snobby face or something? Well, have you ever failed Jesus or spent periods of your life ignoring him or gone through a time where you weren't totally on board with him and uh, how does he still love you? yeah (laughs) well you got to be that way with those other people too be like him and think think about this what are we supposed to do to our worst enemies? what does Jesus say? Luke chapter 6 pray for them bless them do good to them right? okay well that, that makes sense. So, listen, I've been on the receiving end of behind-my-back manipulations and ministry problems before, in another church, before I came here. And I have vivid memories of that time. It was a very painful time. People working against me in the church, leaders of the church working against me. And I was one of them. I know how that feels. Well, what do you do? Do you rag on them try to, for undermining me? Do you mark them lousy, as they used to say? And do you see them as an enemy? Do you find ways to undermine them and pull them down? Is that, the, is that what you're supposed to do? No, that's not even an option. Why? Because they're brothers in Christ. That's, that's the great reason. Christ loves them. Christ lives in them. Christ saved them. And who am I to deny them? my love. I don't like what they're doing, but do I hate them? No, you're not allowed to hate. You're not allowed to hate. So I seek their best, the church, I seek the best for the whole church. That's how my mind works. I don't hate. I choose love. That's how we're supposed to respond to any situation. Well, how do I choose love? I mean, what does that look like? Well, it looks like a lot of things. One thing it looks like is that I'll examine myself and I'll say, what if they're right? And when I ask that question, what if they're right, I don't, I don't, I don't wanna just like um, jump to a place where I say, well, if they're wrong a little bit, then they're all wrong. <laughs> Maybe they're a little bit right and I should look at that and consider that if they've got something against me or something like that. Have I blown it on my end in any way, in any way? Hopefully, I'll have a friend that'll tell me the truth about myself. Remember Proverbs 27:6? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? It's good if somebody tells you where you're blowing it or gives you good counsel and says, you know what? You're, you're a little messed up on this thing. Your heart's a little wrong here. That's a good thing to have people like that in your life. So if I have conflict... If I have conflict with leaders, and am I respecting and honoring their role? That's a reasonable question. Have I tried to see things from their perspective? Have I even made a real effort to do that? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe we just have an honest disagreement and they're not monsters. Maybe they're not after me. Maybe we have an honest disagreement. They just have a different view of things. One thing to try to do is to see them in their best light possible and assume the best unless you have really strong reasons to not have that and if they're brothers in Christ you know what their motives are probably good probably so even if their methods might be wrong or inappropriate or hurtful so so i think that through well what if what's my part well, do i have a part in this are they right about something even if, even if they're mean about it, if, what if they're right about that? I've got to look at myself. Next, I, what do I do? I entrust myself to the Lord. You protect me. God is a vindicator of the, of the just and the right, right? So you say, Lord, help me examine my own heart for what's wrong. Then I entrust myself to you that you will vindicate me if there's some kind of a thing going on here that's not right against me. And trust him with that. That sets me free because he's going to handle it to love those people. Difficult people. People that might be against me in some way. And all of it. I make sure my reaction to what those people are doing. Does not turn me into them. Does not make me unfair. When I think about them. Or talk about them. Uh, Not um, unfair in my mind. In how I'm thinking. And not in any communication I have. About what they've done. I'm not going to be unfair. Love treats others the way you want to be treated, right? And if you're, if you're on the other end and you say, would I want somebody to diss me or say untrue things about me or paint me in a way that's not really true, even if we have a disagreement or if there's something else going on, no, I wouldn't want that. So I'm going to be fair to them whether they're fair to me or not. You know, our current culture, and I guess a lot of it's rooted in politics, but also just sort of the philosophy that's going, it, demonizing other people is sort of a key component of the national discussion about almost anything. Politics has taught us that. It's a Catholic writer named David Mills who kind of warns believers about political activism. And I'm a pretty political person, not here, but on my, own, on my Facebook life I am. <laughs> but you've got to be really careful because political activism or any kind of activism can um, corrupt or destroy love. And you can't let that happen. So this is this is how he says the righteous crusader sees himself. Okay? He says, You're not a peevish, sour, angry little troll in his cave hating the world. You're not the frivolous worldly person shopping his way through life either. You're a warrior. A soldier charging into battle for king and country against the alien hordes. You expect your victory to cleanse the land of evil and your side's victory to bring peace and justice. And he says that has its own characteristic dynamic that leads to a kind of viciousness. You may start just wanting to promote your own side and fair enough. But at some point You run out of superlatives. You can't make the thing you love look better, but you can always make the enemy look worse. And in contrast, your side look better. Now does that sound like anything that happened before November 6th? (laughs) I mean, uh, that's the way our culture functions. And it's so easy to do that. It's so easy. And if you're clever, it's even more easy because you know how to flip things and twist things and break things and but is it right? Is it good? Is it honorable? Is it love? That's the question. And he says the simple act of painting a person you dislike as worse than they are is truly a form of hate. Whether you build a case against them in your own mind or more hatefully if you paint them as worse than they are to others, that is a hateful action. And, and it springs from hate. So let God reveal to you if that ever becomes your nature or your way. And I've got to tell you, you know, um, I see it all the time in theological battles between evangelical Christians, between them, brother to brother. I see that kind of uh, anger and name-calling and the assumptions they make about people's motives, you know. I'm a dyed-in-the-wool um, election sovereignty of God, pretty much Calvinist theologian there. And, but when, when I hear Calvinists talk about non-Calvinists as prideful because they believe they made a decision that God didn't, you know, God left it up to them whether they were going to be saved or not. And they say, that's their human pride. No, it's not. They don't see it as pride. In fact, one friend of mine who's a Arminian, he, she said, um, "She said, I, I'm just a person completely unable to help myself, reaching out a hand to the Savior. That's not pride." <laughs> you know, you, theologically, you might have a difference with that person on, on what really the dynamics of salvation, but they're not prideful. But I I, I see people on. Uh, chat groups and things I have that share my theology talking about other people that way and I just jump on there and say well I know a lot of people on that side that aren't proud at all that's just unfair it's unfair but we feel so much better when we can judge other people and and those kind of things you know and that's that's another whole realm that whole theological realm but um, it could just be that good people disagree about certain things you know no they must be crushed no they don't have to be crushed God can crush them. You don't have to crush them. So that's bad in the public sphere of Christianity. But it happens in the local church too. And that's where it matters for you and I. That's where it matters for us here. When it's done on the personal level. In church. It's horrible. It's horrible. To see murders go on in church. (laughs) It's not a good thing. You are not allowed to treat brothers and sisters in Christ as your enemy. You're not allowed to do it. You're forbidden. Strictly forbidden. Hate is murder. And Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how Jesus took all these external sins and he just internalized them? Oh yeah, you don't commit adultery. You never lust in your heart. Remember how the whole Sermon on the Mount is kind of built on that, that framework? And what did he say about murder? People, I'm not a murderer. But you hate. And that is murder. It's the same impetus that leads to murder, to hate another person. You just don't want to go to jail. (laughs) You don't want to get in trouble, but you hate in your heart. We should always, as Christians, be quick to repent of murder in our heart, of of hate. And Jesus said that is hate. You know John Newton, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace? He was a pretty wonderful shepherd of a, a flock after he stopped being a slave trader and found Christ and his life was radically transformed. And so we know him from Amazing Grace, but he wrote a lot of great stuff too. And um, he called this uh, narrowing your love for your kind of Christian people. He called it party love. I love the people in my, my group, my party, you know, sort of like political party, but this is like a theological party or a denominational party. Our little thing, we just love our own people. We make allies then to promote our views or ourselves. We pick and choose which saints we will love based on their compatibility with me. You know, that's how we think. That's not good. That's not good at all. We have to humble ourselves. We have to repent of the sin of murder when we hate other people and we have to humble ourselves. It's that whole thing where you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You selectively love the ones who are the most like me. That's not right. The people that support my ideas. Or the people that will advance me personally. Well, those are my people. Here's what Newton actually said. He said, the objects of this are those who are of the same sentiment. Worship in the same way. Or are attached to the same minister. They who are united in such narrow and separate associations may express warm affections without giving any proof of true Christian love. He's saying that's not the kind of love Jesus is talking about that's going to change the world. When you love just your little group, it's what Lucian was talking about. When you love anybody that's a true Christian from other groups, people you don't even know. I love people who, are, who love my favorite preacher. I love people who love my favorite theologian or author or my view of a particular fine point doctrinal area. There's no room for party love like that in church life. There, there just isn't. As soon as it's about me, then like we talked about with Cain last week, hate is crouching at the door. As soon as, I, as, soon as I'm selecting my loves Towards other people like that. Can't do that. It's not right. Now look. It's totally natural. To be drawn to. And enjoy. Like minded people. That's a completely normal. That's what friendships are based on. Right? That's perfectly normal. But in the church. In the family of God. Every believer is to have my love. In Christ. That is. is, I'm going to labor for what's best for them. I'm going to care about what's best for them. That's all we're talking about. That's love. They don't have to be your best buddy. Maybe you love wrestling. And not everybody loves wrestling. You might have a lot of wrestling friends. Right Rebecca? But. I should say that to Brooke. I know. I know. I'm picking on you because he's out the door. And that would be totally appropriate. To have friends in in your sphere. But to deny love to people that are very different from you. That have very other interests in you—that's wrong, and that's that's sinful. So there's no room for party love in church life. Paul talked a lot about party spirit in First Corinthians chapter three. Remember that the church was divided. What a mess, Messed up church the church in Corinth was. Boy, you read First Corinthians, you go. These people were Christians, but he treats them like they were. <laughs> But, but one group, remember, followed, they had different allegiances. One group loved Paul. Another group loved Apollos. Another group loved Simon Peter. Cephas, Paul calls him. And um, some people said, well, I follow Christ. Those are probably the snootiest people. <laughs> but he said in 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, he said, you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Well, I am a mere man. No, you're not. If you're a Christian, you're a born-again man and a born-again woman. You're a born-again, you're a transformed person. You're not a mere man. You're not flesh. He says, when one says, I'm of Paul and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants. Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth, he says. So it's all God's work if those are faithful men preaching the true gospel. There's no rivalry between them, no rivalry in ministry, no competition, no tribes. And that attitude that they had was fleshly for not valuing the other people or respecting their, the people that they liked who are all solid Christians. We're not talking about charlatans and heretics. We're talking about real Christians here. We have to be controlled by the spirit, not our flesh. It's our flesh that wants to divide and have little groups and party spirit. So when Paul says, are you not mere men? He's telling the Corinthians, they're acting like unregenerate men, like people that are not born again, like the world. And Christians are not to act like mere men. We're, we're to act like transformed men. Men who reflect the love of the Savior who was given to us. And if we appreciate his love for us, we should be able to give it out freely. Does Christ love faithful Baptists more than he loves faithful Presbyterians? <laughs> of course he does. I'm a Baptist. <laughs> no, that's not right. His love is distributed equally to all who are truly his own. So all Christians are to be loved by us with sincerity of heart. No matter what denomination they belong to or their view of the end times or their opinion about baptism and tribalism in the body of Christ or in individual churches, it's acting like the world. It's a mere men thing. You know? And when the world sees that, they go, you guys are just like everybody else. You hate each other too. So party love is one problem. Another, another, and more personal, on a more personal level, is believers that are acting for their own self-interest. Let's think about this in the local church setting, just within one church. Self-interest is when motives for serving in the church have more to do with my desires than with love for the brethren. And it happens. It happens all the time. It's not uncommon at all. This person, and it could be the pastor, this person thinks the church exists to serve his particular interests or desires. He's, he is convinced that doing God's will depends on his personal wishes being fulfilled so that's what he's going to push and go for. Some people are not happy unless they have their own way, they're just not. Church people are often very sweet and very accepting so people like that that are focused on self-interest who like influence or like power they try to manipulate those sweet people and sometimes they get away with it, but it's our obligation to never be manipulated to do that, to choose sides, or to back one person against another person, because that makes love go away, and we don't want love to go away. Love brings together; love doesn't separate. That divisiveness is not what Peter calls in First Peter 1:22. I read it earlier: a sincere love for the brethren. You know what the word sincere is in Greek? So we've talked many times uh, when we were in the Gospels about the word uh, hypocrite. You know, Jesus calls people hypocrite. And the the Hippocrates, the Greek word, it means actor. And the word sincere in the New Testament that Peter uses there when he talks about a sincere love for the brethren, it's unhypocritical. It's the opposite of being an actor. In other words, it's real. Because we can all act like we love each other and stab them in the back later. When we're talking to our friend, we could do that. But he's talking about an unhypocritical love, not acted, not put on, real love. Love that seeks the best for other people. The, lo- the love that seeks the best for the whole church that wants the best for everyone. The Apostle John is gonna talk about a sincere love like this when we get down to verse 18 in 1 John, but that's coming later, you know. You can peek down right now, but don't worry about it. But John Newton, the Amazing Grace hymn writer, he, he sees hypocritical love as, as putting the interest of self first. And this is what he says. The Lord's people are gentle, peaceful, benevolent, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. They are desirous of adorning the doctrine of God their Savior and approving themselves followers of Him who pleased not himself, but spent his life doing good to others. Upon this account, those who are selfish and love to have their own way may like their company, the company of all those sweet people, because they find more compliances and less opposition from them than others. So the person that's self-centered and has to get his own way looks for those people that are open and sweet and pliable and works them to get them to become on their side, you know, to serve their interests. So that's what he's saying there. Self-promoting individuals use sweet-tempered, loving, godly people to get their own way. The selfish try to use those trusting, open-hearted disposition folks. So, he loves not for Christ's sake, but for his own interests. That's where his love is. It's not a, sincere, not a sincere love. And Newton uses a great example from Genesis. You know, Jacob and Laban. Laban was the father of the gals that um, Jacob ended up marrying. He wanted to marry. Well, I won't go into that whole story. But, you know, he ended up with two wives. But, um, it's, it says, in, it says uh, he's, Newton says, For while Laban loved Jacob, He found him diligent and trustworthy and perceived that the Lord prospered him on Jacob's account. So Laban's looking at Jacob and he loves him. Be my son-in-law. I love you. I love you because God blesses you and I get richer every time he does. He says, but when he saw that Jacob flourished and thought that Jacob was likely to leave him, his love was soon at an end for it was only founded on self-interest. And that's so true. If you would have asked Jacob, does your father-in-law love you? He'd say, oh, yeah, he's so great. Until he didn't profit him anymore. Then that love went away. We don't want to have a love like that. Make sure your love is not attached to your interests. It's really important. Beware of church people who want you to further their interests too and not the interest of the whole body. Their, their love lasts only as long as you support them. So don't let that happen. And that doesn't mean be suspicious of everybody. <laughs> doesn't mean that. It means the opposite of that. If you are gentle and peaceful and benevolent and swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to get angry. And you're desirous of adorning the doctrine of God your savior. You're in a great place. If, you, if you're like that kind of person, you're in a great place. Just be aware of what could happen and make sure it doesn't happen to you. That you get pulled off on the path of somebody's self-interest. When I first started in ministry long ago, I, I read a book that was, has been invaluable. I just started and somebody recommended it. It's called Well-Intentioned Dragons. Well-Intentioned Dragons. And it's about the kind of unhealthy relationships a pastor might encounter in a, in a typical church. So it's kind of a warning. So it describes, it actually describes stuff that a naive person would think couldn't possibly happen because everybody's a Christian and we all love each other but happened to pastors all the time. So it's describing that kind of stuff. They'll kind of warn you about that and how to deal with some of those kind of things. Because something caused somebody somewhere in that church to hate. Some slight or some sl- loss of influence or something like that. Many years ago, many years ago here, we had a few ladies that were causing all kinds of division um, behind the scenes. Didn't know it was really going on until it started sort of surfacing a little bit here and there. And it seemed like their purpose was to sow dissension in the church. They actually wanted that to happen. There was no love in it at all. There's backbiting and misrepresentation and stories going around. And that grew into flat out lying about people. And a, a dear sister called me in tears after one of these people spoke to her and tried to break her away from the church or, or make her not love the leadership or that kind of a thing, you know. And um, I, I found out all about it. It was like, dragons! There's dragons in my church, you know? It was a dragon's lair, several. What do you call a group of dragons? It's like a gaggle of geese. What do you call a group of dragons? A scale of dragons, let's call it that. There was a scale of dragons going and they were living in this little lair somewhere. So I met with the uh, chief dragon and I said, I said, you know, you seem to have a lot of animosity towards me and towards the leadership of the church. And I said, I asked her, I said, are you trying to, divide the church? Yes I am, yes I am. She was very open about it. Now it's hard to be angry with a, an honest dragon. I mean that was, I thought she'd deny it, you know, of course not, no, but yeah, I'm trying to divide, I'm trying to break up the church, I'm trying to divide it. I'm to turn people against each other. <laughs> well the book didn't tell me they'd be that honest. <laughs> but you know what that was, was a failure of love there. How could you possibly have that as your motive and love the brethren, you know? It's impossible. She couldn't handle the limits that the elders had put on her as far as her roles in the church. Her life was a mess, and the leadership wanted her to focus on certain things first, and work her way back up, and you know, she wanted to do these certain things. So hate grew in her heart, hate. She didn't love the brethren. You can't be in leadership if you can't love Your brothers and sisters, I mean, that's foundational. So there can't be self-interest in ministry. There can't be. It's a privilege to be in ministry of any form, not a right. In fact, the word ministry, what does that mean? Serve, right? That's what that word means. Service. So, and God leads the church through elders. They, They shepherd the flock. Can elders be wrong? Yeah. Do they misjudge things sometimes? Yeah. They're humans. Should you work against them when you think that they're wrong or mistaken about something? No. (laughs) If they're sinning, that's something else. Expose it, right? But if it's not sin, then trust God. Trust God. If they're sinning, it's one thing, but if they're not, it's just God works through the collective wisdom of the elders. Collective. We we have to agree on something or it's not going to happen. So one elder can stop something from happening. When we all agree, then we know it's God, okay? Now, you can say, well, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that thing that you decided or that God led you to decide. Well, then ask God to enlighten the elders. Lord, the elders are wrong. Would you please tell them? And then once you do that, then love them and the church. Don't divide things. You can make your views known, too, in a loving way. <laughs> but they're, they make decisions as a team. So our, our dragon was using her sisters and bringing them into her scale, or her lair, or whatever you want to call it, and, and drawing people into her circle to promote her own cause, which was related to her particular influence and position in ministry in the church. And that hurt all of them, and they all ended up leaving. Which was a good thing, ultimately, but tragic, actually. Not a satisfactory outcome. Thankfully, We've always had elders, always have had elders, ever since our first elder, other than me, Art Trouville, and then Mel, that have always loved the church much more than they love themselves. We've always had that. So a pattern of love in this church was there really early. So we've been very unusually blessed because not all churches have that. Not at all. Humans are such flawed creatures and we need to be very self-aware that we not become dragons in a church, right? The failure to love in the body of Christ is it's like letting a murderer on the loose. There's a murderer running around. If you have hate for someone in the church you're a murderer. It's a killer of unity. It's a killer of peace. It's a destroyer of love and it puts out our light. It snuffs out the light because if Jesus said our love for each other, is how the world is going to see him, then it's absolutely essential that we do so, that we love one another. That's our first responsibility. Okay, well John's not done um, with this topic of love, and neither are we, so next week we'll come back, and we'll talk, I, I hope a little bit more about cultivating the spirit of love, and this attitude of love, and put it into practice, and in how we do that. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, you have set us in a community of the redeemed uh, the household of faith the kind of love you want from us is not that of mere men it's supernatural it's from the spirit and it is perfectly realized in Christ so we ask you to make us like our savior take away the quiet murders in our hearts and help us cultivate a selfless interest toward all our fellow believers in your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.